Good morning. For those of you that don't know, my name is James Michael Smith, and I'm one of the teachers of the passage classes here at Good Shepherd. And today we're beginning the series Old Rugged Cross. The cross, it goes without saying, is the most recognized symbol in the entire world. You can see crosses everywhere, no matter where you are. People wear crosses. People have crosses printed on their clothes or lapel pins or bumper stickers. Or you, you see the cross everywhere. But so many people don't understand what the cross means. And a lot of people think they understand what the cross means, but are just scratching the surface. And that's what this series is going to really challenge you with, is, is your understanding of the cross a little too me-focused? Or maybe not enough we-focused, piggybacking off the last series. And one of the things that's really interesting is, for the past probably century or two, the cross has been seen as all about how I get right with God. I believe in the cross. I believe what Jesus did. He died for my sins. I can go and be with God in heaven. There's a kernel of truth to that, a big kernel of truth. That is, that is true. Or some people say, well, the cross is where Jesus paid the penalty. He, he paid the atonement for my sins. He took my sins upon himself, suffered the penalty so that I wouldn't have to. And by believing in that, I'm made right with God. Again, there's much truth in that. Not to deny either of those. But the earliest promise of the cross, the very first one in all of Scripture, puts the emphasis somewhere else before it gets to any of those other scenarios. So in the beginning, if you go to Genesis, and we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 3, the very first promise of the cross. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates everything, and then he especially creates man and woman as the crown of his creation. He places them in the garden to be his, his vice regents, so to speak, his, to rule the earth, to have dominion over the earth. That's the role that God gives man and woman. Well, what we find out in chapter 3, in the beginning of chapter 3, is very quickly they not only fail to accomplish that, but they actually go in the complete opposite direction. Rather than exercising dominion and, 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 and ruling the earth in his place, they allow themselves to be ruled over through deception and ultimately rebellion. This figure that's introduced, the serpent, just in, in Genesis, he just appears as the serpent. He's wise and crafty. And the rest of the Bible unpacks and pieces together his identity. And only very much later in Scripture do we really see him for who he truly is. But in Genesis, when we encounter him, he, he's the voice that leads Adam and Eve. Both of them were there. It wasn't just Eve and the serpent. Adam was right there with her. Read the text. And the serpent deceives them, leads them astray. And through that act, they end up relinquishing their authority. The authority and the rule and the reign that they were given, they end up releasing and giving over to the serpent. And that's why later throughout the Bible, the, the, the serpent, the evil one, who we later come to see is identified as Satan, he'll be spoken of as, 
as being the ruler of this world or the prince of this world or various other titles that show that he has some legitimate authority. He actually tempts Jesus by offering to share some of his authority with Jesus if Jesus will worship him. Well, that wouldn't have been a temptation if he didn't have the authority. So in the garden, at the fall, which is what Genesis 3 talks about, the fall of man, when sin entered the world, humanity came under the rule to some degree of the serpent, the evil one. And when God shows up, and he, he shows up to give his, his judgment, his proclamation, he doesn't first address the man and the woman and their sin, although he does get to that. The first thing that he does is addresses the serpent. Genesis 3, 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That translation that's uh, NIV, there's, a, there's, I don't know why, but for some reason, the word crush and strike, this, that's the same word in, in the original Hebrew text. I, I, there's reasons that the translators probably chose to give it a different nuance, but, but it's the same word. It could read, he will crush your head, but you will crush his heel, or he will strike your head, you will strike his heel. It's the same thing. What it is, though, at the very beginning of the Bible is this promise that God is going to put things back to being right, and it's going to involve the crushing of the head of the serpent. It's going to involve the, the subjugation of this serpent. And it's going to come through the offspring of the woman. In other words, God's not going to do it just out of the blue, out of heaven. It's going to happen through one of Eve's descendants. Theologians call this the proto-evangelion, which means a fancy way of saying the first gospel. Because this is the first announcement in Scripture of God's ultimate plan in dealing with sin and death. And so right here at the beginning, we see that, that God's goal is not just to forgive sin, but more foundational than that, to crush the head of the one who led humanity into sin. Well, by the time you get to the end of the Bible, God finally reveals the identity of this serpent more fully. And he does it through the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 12. And in Revelation 12, now, now before we even talk about that, there has to be some background. Revelation's a weird book. Anybody ever tried to read it? Anybody try to read it at night and you put it down because it's just scary? <laughs> Revelation's a very strange book because it's written in a different type of writing than almost every other part of the Bible. Revelation is written, the genre of writing that it belongs to is called apocalyptic. And apocalyptic doesn't have anything to do with the end of the world necessarily. Apocalyptic just means unveiling or revealing. That's where the name revelation comes from. Apocalyptic literature is a type of literature written to reveal, to unveil, to pull back the curtain of what's going on in the world and show people the true nature of their situation. And apocalyptic writing did that through using very vivid symbols and images and numbers it, it used these, these visuals that, that were just beyond imagination in order to describe, through heaven's perspective, earthly reality. 
Well, apocalyptic also drew on images of the culture that it was written to. And apocalyptic, the apocalyptic writing of Revelation was written to early Christians who came from Jewish and Greek backgrounds. And so uh, throughout the book of Revelation, I'm about to go down next weekend and, and teach a seminar the whole weekend on the book of Revelation. And, and, and it is just literally is flooded with, with illusions and, and imagery and metaphors and symbols from the Old Testament as well as from the wider pagan Greek culture. Well, one of the things that there, there was a story, there was an idea, it was, it was, it was beyond a cultural story, it was this motif of um, this cosmic struggle that all, almost every culture in the ancient world had a version of that we've been able to find in their writings. And scholars call it different names. Some call it the combat myth or the ancient combat myth. And what this was in, in various forms, whether Egyptian or Canaanite or Greek or Roman, they all had their different take on it. But it basically told the same story. The story was there was promised this, this coming child who would be born to a woman who would grow up to destroy this evil, beastly monster of some type, usually a dragon or a serpent. And the dragon or serpent would try to destroy the mother and child as, they were, as the child was young or just before it was born, but would be prevented by some action on behalf of whether it was some other god or whether it was the woman or whether it was nature or whatever. And so the dragon, the, the serpent, wouldn't be able to destroy the child and the child would grow up and end up overthrowing and defeating the dragon. And the most common one to the readers of Revelation would have been the Greek version, which was the woman, Leto, gave birth to a son, Apollo, who was a god. And Apollo would grow up and slay the dragon Python, who was the serpent that tried to kill him. And, 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 and as Python tries to attack Leto, Leto's taken off, by I think, by Zeus to an island somewhere where she's kept and protected and Apollo can grow up, and he's kept away from, the, from Python as well until he's able to eventually come back and slay the beast. Well, this was, a, this was a common myth throughout almost every culture in the ancient world. Revelation 12, what we see is it picks up on that myth and says there's a reason that this myth is so pervasive in cultures because there's a kernel of truth to it that began back in Genesis 3. And Revelation takes the vehicle of this combat myth and uses that to convey the gospel truth. In other words, it says, you want to know what all those legends and myths and, and these ideas were pointing towards or were hinting at? Let me tell you the real story. And so this is what we read in Revelation chapter 12. John's in the middle of his vision. John says, a great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. This would have evoked in his Jewish readers, in addition to the Leto, Python, Apollo, and ancient combat, this would also invoke the prophet Isaiah who describes Israel as a woman in labor pains, groaning to bring forth the Messiah. This is, this is Old Testament imagery as well. They weave together in Revelation. Then another sign, verse 3, another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. 
The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She will give birth to a son, a male child, who, quote, will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. That's a quote from Psalm 2, another Old Testament reference of the coming Messiah who would rule the nations with an iron scepter, this mighty imagery. So you have this fearsome dragon trying to devour this woman's child who the woman is about to give birth to. Verse 6. Excuse me, verse 5. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. What we see here is as soon as this child is born, it's taken up into heaven, away from the dragon. And as a result of that, the dragon and all of his armies are cast down from heaven and can't accuse anymore. The, 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 the word Satan is just a, it's a title. It's not really a proper name. It's a title from the Hebrew word ha-satan, which means the accuser the one who accuses. And you see in the Old Testament, Satan had the authority to accuse God's people. He did it with Job. He, he could come before God and say, hey, check out Job. He's only good because you've blessed him. But I think he's really bad, and if I get my hands on him, he'll turn from you. Elsewhere in Scripture, the, Satan has the ability to come before God. He can accuse people. He can accuse them of being in rebellion against God, of being guilty. But in Revelation, when the child is taken up into heaven... He loses that ability. Most people read this sort of piecemeal. You read Revelation, and you're not really sure what's going on because it's, it's cyclical, and it goes and repeats, and there's all this weird imagery. And you get to this, and, and, and you've heard stories growing up, so you go, oh, this is describing the fall of Satan before the creation. And, and so he tried to be like God, and there was a war in heaven. He was cast down to earth, and then he went and tempted Adam and Eve. Whether or not that's the case, and that's a whole other topic of discussion, this passage is not teaching that. This passage puts the hurling down of Satan, the defeat of him by God and, and the armies of God as the result of the exaltation of this male child, this son. Satan's downfall comes as the Messiah is raised up. There's not room in heaven for both of them. One of them's got to go. And Satan's thrown down to the earth. The cross is where this happened. Jesus' death on the cross was where Satan was hurled down and lost his ability, his authority, to be the accuser. Now, some of you may say, well, how do you know? That's an awful lot to read into this passage. Well, I'd say, just trust me. 
But I don't think that's a good enough answer for most of you. And it shouldn't be. Hopefully it's not. No, we have some more commentary on this event. And we have it from a pretty trustworthy source, Jesus. In John 12, Jesus gives us the meaning that will be fully explained in Revelation 12. In John 12, Jesus is describing his impending death. He knows the purpose for which he came. And he speaks of his glorification, of his exaltation, his raising up. And listen to what he says. You can read the whole section on your own. I'm going to just read a couple of the verses. Starting verse 23, Jesus says, of John chapter 12, verse 23, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he goes on, verse 27, and he says, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then God, through a voice from heaven, says, basically, I'm going to do that. And everybody hears it, and Jesus realizes, or, or they realize that God is endorsing what Jesus is doing. Jesus says, verse 31, Now is the time for the judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And when I am lifted up from earth, will draw all people to myself. Verse 33, he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Jesus equated his death with the driving out of the prince of this world. The cross was where the head of the serpent was crushed. The cross is, is the victory over that ancient serpent. And the cross, interestingly enough, is also where the heel of the woman's offspring, Jesus, was also crushed. Look at this picture we've got. This is an excavated remains of a heel bone of a crucifixion victim. Crucifixion, the, he, the, the nails wouldn't go through the top of the feet. Usually they'd go through the side, either twisted and driven through both heels or, or their heels would sort of straddle the pole and they'd put nails on either side. The, the, the heel bone, the big bone in your heel, was that's a good anchor point if you're trying to nail somebody. And so a lot of times in crucifixion, that's where the nail would go. Does that, that's just fascinating to me. The very means by which the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, Jesus, the very means by which his heel was crushed is the means by which the serpent's head was crushed. The serpent's authority, the serpent's power was taken at the cross. And Christians, for the first thousand plus years of the church's history, this was the primary way they understood the cross. And they believed that the cross is where we were forgiven of our sins, and they believed the cross is where Jesus paid the price and ransomed us and atoned for our sins, and all of those things, they believed all that. But primarily, the cross was where Jesus the Messiah was victorious over Satan. And this came to be known as the Christus Victor, or victorious Messiah concept in theology. And, and it's... It's, it, what it does is, through Revelation 12 and, and, and Jesus talking in John 12 about the cross uh, being not just where he pays for my sins, but where he destroys the very one who led humanity into sin, where he takes his power, casts him down, defeats him. Man, that puts a whole new light on the cross. Because now it's not just about getting me to heaven. 
It's about the battle on a cosmic scale that Jesus has already won. We celebrate Easter. Usually Easter is when we get excited and, and you know, we, we dress nice and we dress our kids up cute and we come and it's happy and it's joyous. And it was. But the victory happened on Good Friday, not on Easter. Listen to how theologian John Stott, one of my favorite theologians, he puts it this way. He says, we're not to regard the cross as defeat and the resurrection as victory. Rather, the cross was the victory won and the resurrection the victory endorsed, proclaimed, and demonstrated. So every Christian conversion involves a power encounter in which the devil is obliged to relax his hold on somebody's life and the superior power of Christ is demonstrated. The cross is a cosmic victory by Jesus over the one who held humanity captive. Well, the question then becomes, okay, if the victory was won on the cross, why all the evil still going on in the world? Satan doesn't seem defeated. He seems very much alive. Revelation keeps going. It explains this. It tells this in advance. We'll pick up where we left off in chapter 12. Verse 12, after explaining this and what happened and telling, Rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. This is what the voice says to John. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. What we see through this apocalyptic presentation, and it draws on imagery from the Old Testament, from the Exodus, from uh, being carried out into the wilderness on eagle's wings. That's how God described how he brought Israel out from Pharaoh, through the Red Sea, you know, the, the threatening waters. And, and even in the Old Testament, you can read in the prophets, they describe Pharaoh, who's pursuing Israel as a serpent, using this combat myth. It, 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 Revelation just weaves it in and out. But the gist of it is that the dragon sees, the serpent sees that he can't destroy the woman. And in Revelation in 12, the woman represents, just like in the Old Testament, the people of God as a collective, as a corporate unity. The, the people of God. In the New Testament, we call it the saints or the church, all who are in Christ Jesus. That's what's represented by the woman. Satan cannot touch that. Jesus said it himself this way. He said, you know, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church will not be destroyed in its corporate sense. So Satan goes off then. The devil goes off, and it says, and he went to make war on the rest of her offspring. And then it gives the message, those who follow the commandments and keep the testimony about Jesus. And, and that's the, the rest of her offspring in Revelation, what we find out. That's Christians individually and Christian communities around the world. Satan can't destroy the woman, God's people. 
because God protects his bride. He can't destroy the offspring because he's been exalted and raised to the highest heavens. He can try to make life miserable for all who follow. And that's what Revelation was written to tell the Christians in the first century who were being tempted to either abandon or compromise their faith in order to get a higher social standing or to have an easier life, or who were being persecuted for their faith on pain of death. And throughout the centuries of Christianity, both of those have been the reality for the church. We're always tempted to either compromise or persecuted when we don't. And so what we see is that in Revelation, in this section, there, there's a period of time between when, when, when Satan is cast down and hurled down and, and, and stripped of his authority and when he finally is destroyed, destroyed once and for all, like out of the picture completely. And in between that time is where we find ourselves along with the first Christians and everyone since Jesus ascended. This, this now and not yet paradox. So how do we explain that? Well, there are a couple ways to think about it that I've always found helpful, one of which comes from World War II. In World War II on the European front, when, when the Allies landed, D-Day, they landed at Normandy, they took the beaches after some intense struggle and, and thousands of lives were lost. They took the beaches, they landed. The war was over in the sense that they won, and everyone knew it. The, the papers declared it, you know, D-Day, successful. It, Hitler had lost at that point once they landed. But VE Day, victory in Europe, they didn't come until all of the mopping up operations had happened, until the, the, the victorious soldiers of D-Day had gone into occupied enemy territory and pushed back and rooted out the last remaining strongholds of a beaten army. Only then would the final VE Day be celebrated. And that's a pretty good way to think about, from a biblical perspective, where we find ourselves. Jesus won it. The cross was D-Day. His ascension sealed the deal. His return will be when the mopping up is finished completely. And we live in the meantime. And cornered forces usually fight the hardest when they know they're beaten. Or... Uh, a theologian, Craig Kester, he's written probably the best book I've ever read on the book of Revelation. And from that book, he writes this about Revelation 12. He says, from a heavenly perspective, evil rages on earth, not because it's so powerful, but because it's so vulnerable. Revelation likens Satan to a rogue animal that the forces of God have corralled, driven it off the expansive plains of heaven and into the fenced-in areas of earth. The beast rampages within its newly limited circumstances, seeking to do as much damage as possible during the short time that remains. Satan rages on earth because he's already lost heaven. The ferocity of evil that we experience isn't the ferocity of an evil that's going to win. It's the last desperate attempt of an evil that's already been beaten. I'll share one more way because this may help you think about it. M.R. Mulholland, commenting on this passage in Revelation, he gave one of, I think, the most brilliant illustrations of this. He used the idea of a chess game, a, a high-level chess match. He says, at a certain point in many chess games, the one who ultimately wins makes a move that sets the mating net, 
That is, from, the point on the outcome, from that point on, the outcome of the game is a foregone conclusion. There may be as many as 10 or 15 or even more moves left before the final checkmate move that seals the victory. During these in-game moves, the loser is still playing the game, still capturing pieces from the winner. But inexorably, unavoidably, finally, the winner makes the checkmate move and the loser is defeated. Often, the move that sets the mating net is costly, a sacrificial move that lures the loser into a trap. The winner may sacrifice the most valuable piece in the game, appearing to ensure defeat. That is exactly what the old rugged cross looked like to everyone watching. See, the cross, before it was ever a symbol of anything, it was a Roman execution torture device. And anybody looking on that day when Jesus hung there would have just seen another upstart, wannabe Messiah peasant from a backwater country in the Roman Empire that Rome had to make an example of by nailing up to a cross just like they'd done with hundreds of other would-be messiahs and their followers. That's the earthly perspective. And even Jesus' followers thought that he was beaten on the cross. They needed him when he came back to remove the scales from their eyes to show them what really happened before they understood it. Because from heaven's perspective, it was the exact opposite. The cross is where Satan was defeated. There was a, there's a great visual depiction of this that came in, in the, the Passion of the Christ movie. The movie itself was filled with illusions and symbolism, and, and, and if the, you can watch it over and over, and the more you see it, the more things you'll notice because the screenwriters did a fantastic job in capturing and just hinting at little things in it. One of those things was the scene at Jesus' death that left a lot of people scratching their heads at the final part, like, wait, what, what was that last part all about? Let's watch it. You'll see what I mean.
Now, the question a lot of people had was, who was the crazy, screaming, bald lady man thing at the end? What was that all about? I got all the other stuff, because that's written in the New Testament, but that part was weird. Early in the movie, that was the figure of Satan. And, and when that figure first appeared to Jesus at the beginning of the movie, trying to get him to forego the cross, it even sends out a little serpent that crawls. And if you've seen the movie, remember when Jesus finally stands up and decides, no, I'm going to the cross, he stomps on the head of the serpent. That's another, that's Genesis 3 reference right there. It's very, very beautifully artistic way of combining Genesis with what happens and what we see in Revelation. It starts with the perspective of looking down on the cross, this desolate hilltop, and then the single teardrop that falls, and then all this stuff, and then it ends with that same perspective, looking down on Satan, screaming in agony, knowing that he's been defeated, knowing that he's been cast down. I let that scene hit me like a ton of bricks when I first saw it, because it so well captured this idea that the cross was not just about getting you or me to heaven. So, what does any of this matter? You know, some may say, well, all right, that's good. We took a little trip through the Bible, and this weird passage in Revelation makes a little more sense now. But what does it matter? What's the application? Well, good theology should have application. If it doesn't, it's not good theology, or it hasn't been presented well. And, and the application is that we experience the same shift in perspective that the first readers and the first hearers of this message experienced. That we, that we see the cross in a completely new light. That the cross is not just a bridge between me and God, although it is that. And it's not just where Jesus paid the price for my sins, although he did that. Neither of those things are wrong, but it's more than that. And it paints this struggle that we find ourselves in, in a whole new light. It's no longer just me trying to live a good life because Jesus died on the cross for me. It's I am living out the victory onward push of the kingdom of God every day and engaged in a real struggle against the forces of evil that aren't these big, menacing, scary, I don't have to worry about losing to them. Because they lost, and they will be defeated in the end completely. So we go in victory, not in fear or trepidation, through the cross. The cross as victory, the cross as Christus victor, as Jesus overcoming and defeating sin, crushing the head of the serpent, casting down the ancient devil from heaven so that he can't accuse us any longer, that paints the Christian life in epic proportions. And that's the oldest understanding of what the cross was. But it's one that the church has lost to a large degree. And so in this series, Old Rugged Cross, hopefully what you'll realize in the next few weeks as, as Talbot dives deeper into this, we can never understand the cross fully, ever. It's, it's the, what happened on that cross, only Jesus fully and the Father can comprehend that. But what we can do is get a wider appreciation and a larger view of it. And what we see is the old rugged cross is not just about getting us to heaven. It's about letting heaven reign through us as we follow the one who is already reigning from heaven. That's the meaning of the cross. And so I pray that, that we go out in that understanding and that, that we claim that authority 
Not in a macho, prideful, look at me, I'm a Christian superhero way, but in a way of someone who is, is, is a rightful heir to all that God has accomplished in Christ on the cross. The victory has been won. The enemy is going down, will go down, and he will fight his hardest until the dying breath to make sure that your lives are as miserable as possible, that he loses in the end. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and what it reveals about you. Thank you for your character, that you would keep promises made over millennia, but that you would keep them in such a way that they just boggle our mind. And only looking back can we see what fully happened and appreciate it. I pray that we would appreciate that. I pray that we would see that whatever else we may believe about the cross, whatever else that we may think happened, that that is where you crush the head of that ancient serpent. And therefore, he no longer has any power over us. We give you all praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.